Hi friends, Evan here. Before today's episode, here's a short reflection from a listener turned staff person. When YCFC communications assistant Tim Berglund told me this story, I asked him if he'd be willing to share it on the show because it so wonderfully reflects our hope and vision for how our work at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture can make an impact. And as you might know, right now we have a $25,000 matching campaign, meaning every gift helps us double the impact. Please consider supporting this work by giving online at faith.yale.edu slash give. And it's linked in the show notes. Here's Tim. My name is Tim Berglund, and I'm a first-year Master of Divinity student at Yale Divinity School. I stumbled across For the Life of the World in the spring of 2021, and it instantly resonated with me. Like for so many of us, the beginning of the pandemic was a time when I struggled with my mental well-being, and I yearned not only for healing, but also to make sense of my pain theologically. The conversations in For the Life of the World gave me this opportunity, and I developed a ritual of listening to the podcast while I went for daily runs. One of my favorite episodes was Gilded Wounds, which featured a conversation between Miroslav Volf and Makoto Fujimura. I still vividly remember the opening words of this episode. As Makoto says, something that is broken is already more valuable than when it's whole. Miroslav and Makoto went on to discuss the gratuity of God's love, which shines creatively through our fractures and leaves us transfigured. It was exactly the message that I had been longing to hear. In this episode, and in For the Life of the World in general, the theology is not abstract or esoteric. It is life-giving, honest, tender, and deeply human. I couldn't be more grateful to be here at Yale Divinity School and finally meet the wonderful people who make this podcast possible. Again, you can help us continue to make this kind of impact by supporting our work financially. Give today toward our $25,000 matching campaign at faith.yale.edu slash give. For the Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Visit us online at faith.yale.edu. As a child, looking at art, as I grew up in New York, I discovered that objects have meaning and have stories they are waiting to tell. To hear those stories, one needs to look longer, look deeper, look broader, and give the objects respect across time and space for their relevance to today and to us. From Winslow Homer, I've learned many things. And one of them is to be observant. Another is to recognize that in each moment and in each person with whom our paths cross, there is an opportunity to learn, to grow, often through challenge. This is For the Life of the World, a podcast about seeking and living a life worthy of our humanity. I'm Evan Rosa with the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. We often think that telling the truth only applies to words. But American painter Winslow Homer told the truth in pencil, watercolor, and famously oil paintings. Coming of age in antebellum America, starting his artistic career as the Civil War began, and dramatically painting truth to power during the complicated and ultimately failed Reconstruction era. Winslow Homer looked long and hard at America in its moral complications and struggle toward justice. But he also looked long and hard at the natural world, a harsh, sometimes brutal, but nonetheless ordered world, sometimes red in tooth and claw, sometimes shining rays of grace and glory upon human bodies. Homer's depiction of the human encounter with the world is full of energy and full of spirited struggle and therefore dignity. Our guest today, William Cross, is author and biographer of Winslow Homer, American Passage, biography of an artist who painted America in conflict and crisis with a moral urgency and an unflinching depiction of the human spirit's struggle for survival and search for grace. 
as a consultant to art and history museums, a curator, and an art critic and scholar, and as it happens, the chairperson of our advisory board for the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. When Bill sees the world, he's looking long and hard for beauty and grace, and often finding it in art. Earlier this year, he guided me, Miroslav Wolf, and several of our colleagues through the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art, looking at its recent Winslow Homer retrospective, Cross Currents. Standing before Homer's magisterial painting, The Gulf Stream, you feel the power of the ocean, the power of the human spirit, the power of a black everyman fighting to survive in America, the power of freedom and grace in the most dire of circumstances. Which is to say, Winslow Homer is a painter for today. In this conversation, Bill Cross and I discuss the morally urgent art and perspective of Winslow Homer. We talk about the historical context of American life before, during, and after the Civil War, including the role of Christianity and religious justification of the Confederacy and in the institution of slavery. Bill comments on the beautiful and bracing expression of Black life in Winslow Homer's Reconstruction era work. Is truly radical for its time. But Homer's work goes beyond human social and political struggles. We also discuss the role of nature in his work, particularly the human struggle against the power and indifference of the ocean and the wild, untamed animal kingdom. Now, this is a podcast, so throughout, you might consider referencing each of the paintings we discuss, all of which are available in the show notes and can be found online for further viewing and reflection. Thanks for listening today. Bill, it's such a delight to have you on For the Life of the World. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be with you, Alan. We're going to be talking about art today, and it's an interesting thing to talk about visual art on an auditory podcast. <laughs> I wanted to start by having you describe your own interest in the visual arts. What draws you to them, no pun intended, and what is the role of art in a life of faith? So as a child, looking at art, as I grew up in New York, I discovered that objects have meaning and have stories they are waiting to tell. To hear those stories, one needs to look longer, look deeper, look broader, and give the objects respect across time and space for their relevance to today and to us. And I was particularly grateful to spend many, many hundreds of hours as a child in the galleries of the Metropolitan Museum in New York, looking alone at works of art, not only with family members. And in the 1960s, museums were not yet particularly crowded. I had a lot of time where I could look slowly. And what I found was that there was great reward for the long looking and that these objects could become vessels through which I could travel to another world. And it is therefore gloriously appropriate to me that it is the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is hosting the most ambitious display of Winslow Homer's work in more than a generation and constructing this exhibition in a confidence that his work is relevant to today and that in his understanding of tension born of conflict in his world, he has much to offer to our times as he considers the challenges that American society and human society was facing in the 19th and early 20th centuries and offering up his own meditations on the world around him to our eyes today. What first got you interested in Homer's work? I found that Homer's honesty in observing his world with a, an eye for the unvarnished truth that he could find in the world around him, I found that very appealing. And 
I also found the variety of his work appealing. I think it was Elie Wiesel who said that the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. And before Homer's work, no one can be indifferent. There may be some works that are offensive enough that that people cannot look long easily, that it is a real challenge to look long. But his work appeals broadly and deeply. There are so many people that find him a painter they want to go back to again and again. And like many others, I I find that he draws me back. You said this wonderfully evocative phrase just a few minutes ago, which is, I think I'm paraphrasing, something like respecting the life of the artistic object before you. And I think, of course, there are many objects in life that we feel like we owe a certain kind of respect. And of course, yet they're they're just these physical objects, but there's something enormously moving and deeply significant about paintings, about the, the works of human hands to produce visual art. And so I want to continue with Homer in a moment, but first I just want to hear more from you about the making of these objects and the appreciating of these objects, the long looking, as you say. Winslow Homer believed in the value of particularity, the particularity of a place, of a time of day, of a time of tide, a time of season, and living fully into the presence offered to him as a gift. We can, in our interaction with the particulars of his works of art, also live into that model that he set of engagement fully with what is before our eyes. And some of his works of art are almost impossible to photograph which makes it all the more rewarding to see them in the flesh. And I think that the Metropolitan's exhibition has given us a, a remarkable sense of the breadth of his work. And the many of those examples of his work are very difficult to absorb unless you're before them. And so it's especially wonderful to be able to see privately held works, which are lent generously to this show and are not normally available to see in any museum. I wonder if you could give an art viewer, an art aficionado, even just someone who is visiting New York, say, to visit the Met for maybe the only time in their life. What virtues should they cultivate? What kind of practices should the viewer of art at any exhibition practice in order to obtain that same kind of love and respect for the particularities and the life in the moment that Homer recognizes and portrays in his work? So I think it's some of the same practices that when our two sons were toddlers, I encouraged them to learn. And the first pace yourself. Don't try to see everything with shallowness and check boxes. Try, if you have only an hour to see an exhibition like this with almost a hundred works of art, recognize that you'll make better use of that hour by looking deeply at four or five works and getting to know each of them well and start with the particularities of each of those works. You know, look at the particulars of the color in a given work, the light, the subject matter, the composition, the technique. And in Homer's case, including in his watercolors, he was quite experimental in his technique. So the variety of his techniques are themselves quite impressive and imaginative. But 
looking first systematically at those five elements, light, color, composition, subjects, technique, and thinking about why he would make the choices he made in those five categories, what he was achieving through them can lead you to deeper looking where those 15 minutes spent in front of a single picture become very rewarding. We are not accustomed to looking for more than perhaps 10 seconds at a particular work of art. And yet we are well served when we do just that look longer. I love this phrase of yours. I need to interject to say that I really want you to say about say more about the origins of this phrase for you, looking long. I think it's one of those areas where there's this trans, very transferable virtuous practice that you might say that goes, that, that art can teach a person or train a person, but then that kind of long attentiveness seems to be important across so many dimensions of human life. Yes. We are easily distracted. I am easily distracted. And I believe that in our interpersonal relationships, we are sorely tempted to fail to, to look deeply into the eyes of one another. And it is so easy to hear only snippets of what we say to one another. And yet there is so much more that we can be to one another when we are fully engaged. So the art object may, is inanimate. I recognize that. An easier practice partner. Exactly. I believe that we can learn much from, from that practice and apply the same principles to one another. So the Civil War and that period end up being deeply formative for his life's work. Yeah. How would you describe the impact of politics and the ideology behind the Civil War and Reconstruction era as showing up in his deeply observant paintings? So the Civil War was the defining event, in my view, in the entire history of our country. And Winslow Homer was born exactly 25 years before the Civil War began. And he was making his living as an illustrator in New York. He was born in Boston, but had moved to New York when the Civil War broke out. He made his specialty both as an illustrator and as a painter during the Civil War in depicting the life of the ordinary soldier. Very few of his illustrations and of his works of fine art in the Civil War show Terry Action. He probably saw only limited numbers of moments of military action, but he had many days in which he could observe what it was like to be a soldier in camp anticipating both that action and eventually the end of the war and the country that would emerge from it. Homer was deeply empathetic. He was also, despite being a Boston boy, born and raised, he was keenly aware of the trade ties between North and South. His father's six brothers included three who settled in Mobile, Alabama, two of them permanently. And the family was engaged fully in trade with the South, which was supplying commodities that New Englanders needed, commodities of many kinds, from lumber to cotton. And so he was well aware, particularly from his mother's side, of the moral appeal of the abolitionist position. But he was also well aware from his father's side of the deep ties between North and South 
and the complexity of figuring out a world in which the economic system would be different than one dependent on slavery. And as he saw the Civil War playing out, he saw it from that position of a man who understands complexity, contradiction, and the difficulties of figuring out a way forward. So let's jump into some of these paintings from that Civil War period. In particular, I think you've spoken with such fascinating points about prisoners from the front. I wonder if we could start there. In 1866, Winslow Homer exhibited a pair of Civil War paintings of the same size, each depicting a field with figures in the fields. One which became so renowned that for 10 years, it was the picture against which all of his other pictures would be compared, was called Prisoners from the Front. The field in that picture is identifiable. It's a scarred field in Petersburg, Virginia, with stumps that litter a scarred landscape in which four figures emerge as the focal figures in his picture. One is a cool federal officer. The other three are Confederate prisoners of three different ages, one an old man, one a teenager, and the third at dead center, a very good-looking, red-headed Confederate officer wearing, curiously, his faith on his sleeve with his trousers and jacket slightly unbuttoned. I think obvious is the guns at their feet that have been laid down and perhaps surrender. Uh, very little in the way of green life, except for just small leaves right in the bottom of the frame. But that wasteland that's presented there, I really want to hone in on this, like the, the central figure. And as you say, he's quite literally wearing his faith on his sleeve, that cross that is emblazoned on his right bicep as that arm, as he sort of stands contraposto and his hand is on his hip, it's kind of defiant position toward his captor. Yeah. When this picture was first exhibited, it was viewed as an expression of the victory of the federal forces, the Confederate forces who had laid down their weapons including the two rifles in the foreground. And yet there is a sense of distrust expressed in all three of the Confederate figures. And the central figure, the redhead, is still wearing the pouch in which he loads his ammunition. He looks very cocky and does not appear to be anything like surrendering in his posture. It is interesting that only in one other place have experts on Civil War uniforms ever been able to find a uniform that a cross on its sleeve. And that is in an illustration by none other than Winslow Homer, an illustration that Homer made for a novel glorifying Stonewall Jackson and the Confederacy. Oh, interesting. The picture had a pair which depicted another field, as I said. That other field is unidentifiable. And there are just two figures in that field, both of them boys, too young to have been engaged in battle, both of them barefoot. This painting is called The Brush Arrow. And it depicts a field which is in the process of preparation for a future in which it will, again, bring forth food from the soil. In those days, the term harrow was more commonly used than it is today. 
a field must be plowed first before it can be harrowed, and it must be harrowed before it can be seeded. So the process of preparing the soil after it's plowed depends on a harrow and a harrowing process, which in this case must be done by boys, their father, perhaps gone forever and perhaps too frail, shattered by war to do the work himself. These boys must do that work of promise in anticipation of a future they cannot yet see. Homer uses red paint sparingly in this picture, including in a signature which is prominently displayed with NY, New York, at lower left, in a tiny dot at upper right that he doesn't explain. Is it the shirt of the distant father or another relative, as one art historian half-jokingly suggested? What does that dot mean? And there are a couple of other places where the sunlight gleams on that same red on a battle-scarred horse. But Homer is sparing in his use of color in this picture. He leaves us waiting, as in fact the country was waiting, for some sense of how to be one again and how to be fertile again. Some of the things that I think I find most interesting about this pairing is the religious sensibilities that are implied in each. And so I would love to have you go back to Prisoners from the Front and the Brush Harrow and see them in light of some of the theological connections. First, I think we can't ignore the fact, if for no other reason, that it's so deeply relevant today of the apparent Christian nationalism that is on display in the marriage of that cross on the sleeve of the Confederate uniform. Yes. As a person of faith, I find it disturbing and humbling that this reflects the reality that in the final years of the Confederacy, there was a very active Protestant revival going on among the Confederate troops. And the, the skepticism that Homer displayed about outward expressions of the Christian faith, I think, informs his understanding. Homer never went behind enemy lines and observed the Army of Northern Virginia from within those ranks. His time on the front was always within the federal camp, but he was observant enough to know that in those last years of the Civil War, a Protestant revival was then sweeping across the Confederate armies. And he also understood that as in a Shakespearean tragedy, well-aimed humor deepens the meaning. Mm, yeah. He seconds the 1856 accusation of Senator Charles Sumner that Southern character embodies not just chivalry, but racial and sexual domination enacted by violence and swagger. And he ties in his own deep skepticism about the false faith that condoned such a poisonously misbegotten machismo. It's a difficult truth that Homer is naming. Yeah. And it's a truth that we cannot deny, or if we, we deny it at our peril. But it seems like it's the kind of fact that remains with us in so many ways. Yes. That Christianity and violence have seemed to come together in some of the worst and most destructive ways across history. Yes. And, and that it's centered around this question of the future and 
This is to push us a little toward the direction of the brush arrow, which is still a vision of hope. And to see these two fields, one with the destruction so apparent, one with the arrogance and machismo, the the violence, the religious violence that's there and hatred, and then moving toward a new future. I mean, this is something that this period would have probably evoked across many Americans is the hope that something new might come out of this. Yes, yes. And it, it did evoke hope. And Homer's own brother working in the Texas Freedmen's Bureau was a part of the constructive hope that was the foundation for the reconstruction reforms that gave many people a sense of the possibility that we might be one country in which those who were formerly enslaved were protected to re-enter society in a way that was a level field, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And yet Reconstruction ultimately was a terrible disappointment. And Homer turned to that promise of Reconstruction and the disappointment of Reconstruction in several of his most important works in the mid-1870s. One of the undeniable elements, I mean, really, it's the centerpiece of the history of the Civil War. And I find it, I find that I'd have to agree. I don't know how any, anyone else wouldn't be able to agree that this defining moment in American life, the Civil War, and the period after that, as you say, is failed in such important ways, such lasting ways that we still feel today, have to do with African Americans, have to do with Blackness in America. And Winslow Homer portrays the Black community in the Reconstruction in such bracing and beautiful ways. And it becomes this very interesting commentary when you look across his works and when you think about the kind of work that would have been a social commentary for the time. Yes. So perhaps one place to start is my favorite of his Reconstruction works, which is called Dressing for the Carnival and mm, yeah. is a painting which he originally called Sketch the 4th of July in Virginia. The picture depicts black man being dressed in an unusual costume, and the costume is composed of scraps of colored cloth. The two figures on either side of him are both women who are dressing him for a performance that he will enact fully clad in this colorful costume. It's a performance of an Afro-Caribbean dance called Junkanoo, which was performed in only one place that we know of in the United States during this period which was around Wilmington, North Carolina, and was an expression of the breaking down of the barriers established by race. It was most common around Christmas, but the fact that Homer originally titled this painting to tie it to the 4th of July, and that the painting includes three American flags held by children, one of them tightly furled, also is suggestive of his significance of tying this picture to the very day, July 4th, 1876, on which the entire nation celebrated its 100th birthday. And Homer might well have been in and around Wilmington, North Carolina on that day. And with Blacks, including some who were once enslaved and others who were born after the Emancipation Proclamation and had never known slavery, and all of whom in this picture look towards a dance, which is a dance of hope and of possibility 
for a, an equality that they had not yet tasted. And yet, as we know from history, Reconstruction inevitably ends up leading to the Jim Crow South. And sadly, that hope is, is told to wait even longer. Yes. I would like to say that it was not inevitable. Right. That Reconstruction did lead to Jim Crow. And that was a function of a series of mistakes with which we are still living. All of us, all 330 million of us are living with the failure of those efforts after the war to truly be e pluribus unum. And, and being honest about that failure is a starting point for are figuring out how to succeed in that lofty goal. Let's talk about the unique way that Homer depicts Black life, not just in this particular piece, but in other Reconstruction pieces. So among those works was a pair which was as close to a diptych a single work composed of two pieces that he ever painted. One is called Sunday Morning in Virginia, and the other is called Visit from the Old Mistress. In the first, a group of children read from the Bible on a Sunday morning. So it's not only an act of learning how to read, it's also an act of worship as scripture comes to life. One of the figures in that picture is an older woman who is clearly formally enslaved and probably was statistically, at least we can imagine, unable to read. She looks into the second picture frame, which depicts several African-American women one of them holding a toddler, who are suddenly confronted with a figure that they had known well when they were enslaved. She is the mistress who was a figure of great power in the plantation before the Emancipation Proclamation changed or promised to change everything. And we cannot read sufficiently what the conversation would be like between the old mistress and these three black women, but we can sense tension among them. And Homer leaves by intention ambiguity about what that conversation would be like. He leaves us hanging and view of the older woman in the first painting looking into the second painting, which is depicting the same space with a fireplace on the left and rough-hewn walls. That connection, the glue between the two paintings, is vital, as is our empathy with the older woman looking into the other picture. As we look into both of these two pictures <clears throat> depicting the same space. What I find so interesting about this is the the roles have, that have been assigned here. The those reading are the children. Am I right about that? That's right. And though and there is this presence, there is this white gaze, you might say, from this former mistress who's visiting and looking in, but who has been unseated from that position. And the comment here really reminds me of Jesus in Matthew saying that the kingdom of heaven belongs to these little children. And this act of learning to read and the act of reading scripture aloud, it's hard to deny the kind of sacramental force of this scene, which is one of the upside down subversive kingdom yes. of God, where worldly power is subverted by by the weak, the marginalized, the, the foolish in the eyes of the world. Yes. Those who can't read. And yet the kingdom of heaven belongs to these. Exactly right. 
And Evan, one of the things that makes that especially wonderful is that this comes from the hand of someone who was intensely observant about all aspects of his life and of the world around him other than one. He was, as far as we know, quite unobservant in his formal religious practice, but he had respect for those who were, and also skepticism about those who abused their faith in the way that the redheaded figure at the prisoners from the front is shown as doing. That kind of perspective, is it unique for the time? Are there many social commentators who are pointing out this kind of imbalance, this kind of, I mean, that kind of keen observation, even for a person whose own life of faith or life of doubt is in some kind of question? We can only, I mean, you, well, I will go there. We decided we would go there. <laughs> who else was saying this? It's because it seems like fine art and painting in this way is a, perhaps subtle, but nonetheless, very important means of making that kind of social commentary for this time. So Homer's art asks questions. It doesn't answer questions, but it provokes us to think more deeply. And Homer was not alone in asking questions through his art and even in asking questions that relate to race. He, for example, had a friend named Thomas Waterman who did a famous triptych depicting the same black figure as a recruit and as a uniformed federal soldier and as a wounded veteran, all in the same space. But he was, Homer was unusual in the degree to which he would tell the truth, but tell it slant. And that ability to be what he was often accused as being sketchy, as if it were a negative, leaving space for the viewer, that sketchiness was notable for him. Thomas Waterman Wood was making wonderful paintings, but they were quite finished paintings. Homer would leave his pictures, as he was accused of doing, unfinished. Well, he signed them. He thought they were finished, ready for exhibition. But his critics would complain that they lacked the academic finish that other paintings by other painters had. It was by intention, and it draws us in more deeply. So as an example, in among his best-known Civil War paintings, veteran from a new field, Homer tells us nothing about the expression on the life on the about the expression on the face of the man who has cast his civil war uniform aside and is at work in the field with his plowshare we can't see what expression that face is because homer doesn't give that to us in that case he doesn't give it to us because the posture of the figure is such that nobody could see that. But in other pictures where Homer could provide us a lot more of an understanding of the precise expression on a face, he withholds that to draw us in those pictures more deeply. And this is such a daring thing to do. It's one of the things that I think I appreciate most about Homer's technique, the willingness, the risk that he takes, uh, probably for the time. I mean, this puts him, I think, ahead of his time as a kind of risky painter who dares to leave things sketchy or unfinished, who dares to turn the central figures of his paintings away from the viewer, or to make his, or to, I should say, I'm an Oedipus, but, or to make the subjects of his paintings completely indifferent to the viewer, caught up in some other reality, caught up in their own moment, as equally we should be caught up in ours. I think you see this over and over, whether it's those rescue paintings from the New England coastlines 
the nature paintings. But when you think of depictions of the ocean, Homer is one of those first American painters to come to mind. And if you were only to look for 10 seconds at one of Homer's depictions of the ocean, then you would be deceived, I think, because it takes resting in that moment and really transporting oneself into that moment. And I say this as a person who deeply loves the ocean and tries to spend as much time in it as possible. The depiction of the tumultuous ocean, the unpredictable and dangerous ocean. And as we consider probably his most famous work, at least one of the most iconic Homer paintings, the Gulf Stream, I'm wondering if you can narrate that picture, especially speak to the really the kind of conflagration of black body on this broken ship surrounded by sharks surrounded by an ocean storm off the east coast of America, but caught up in a Gulf Stream that is so much bigger than him. Yes. So perhaps the greatest painting that Winslow Homer ever made depicts a single figure on a demasted sailboat in the midst of a sea of dangers. There are sharks in the foreground In the distance, there is a cyclone, and this single figure, a muscular young black man, looks out of the picture frame, perhaps, and into a future that we cannot fully see. He looks through a group of flying fish, symbols of freedom, and out of the picture frame. As he looks, he does not appear convinced of his impending disaster. Although we see in both the cyclone and the sharks grave danger, he also does not appear confident that he is about to be saved. There is a ghostly ship on the horizon, which we can suspect does does not see him or his sailboat and that he does not see that ship. It's a kind of ghost ship. And yet there is a confidence that he seems to have a determination that is not fully explainable. He holds a rope in one hand and sugarcane in the other. Sugarcane was the dominant commodity in the Caribbean. And this man originally was surely Bahamian. We don't know the name of his model, but we do know that Homer began work on this painting, which he did not fully complete until the 20th century. It was given to the Metropolitan Museum in 1906 or acquired for the Metropolitan Museum from Homer, purchased in 1906. But he began work on this painting in 1885. So the picture originally depicted a Bahamian model, but in the reworking of the painting, after its first exhibition, Homer gave this man a national identity and a home port as he gave the sailboat itself name, and he placed on the stern the name Annie and the home port of Key West, Florida. So Homer has done something which was revolutionary for his time, not only in making an everyman who is Black, but who is America and who is poised in this balance wheel as Homer thought of the Gulf Stream as being. In recognition that these weather systems, this system of the Gulf Stream brought with it both hope and fear, both life and death. And that's a system within which we live and a system which is ultimately governed not by men and women, but by forces 
that are ordered even if through an invisible design. Even in the title of this picture, the Gulf Stream, I wonder about the point that it makes that nature here, depicted by this indifferent force in the Atlantic Ocean that just continues to move and churn as a cycle, as a balance, and finds its own balance with indifference to the individual plight of that every man, that black man, who is, whose gaze is on freedom, who has a hope despite the dangers around him. Even the depiction in the title of the Gulf Stream, it just ignores the fact that there is this gripping portrayal of humanity here. And it really presents the conflict of humanity versus our natural environment. So it leaves open the question of how we live within a world in which we confront great danger. And the Gulf Stream is powerful, and that power can bring danger and can bring good things too. And among the fruit of the earth is the sugarcane. Sugarcane was a commodity that was an economic of economic significance to everyone there but it also is the fruit of a fruit of the earth and we may benefit from recognizing that it is both a source of sustenance and an economic commodity that it isn't just a symbol of a system in which some people oppressed other people and in this moment, it's an opportunity it's, of survival, of, of yeah. maybe of respite, and the way the sun sort of dances and maybe steadies the boat. I mean, the boat is tilted toward the angle of the sun. The man is almost basking for a moment in this almost leisurely pose. If you didn't, if you didn't see the sharks or the cyclone behind him, I think he might just be resting. And yet, he's definitely not. And so this is. I mean, this really just does come back to the many questions that a Homer painting presents to us Yes, that go unanswered. What is his fate? Why is he there? What's off? What's off to the right that he gazes off in hope? It's all just evocative. And it's this kind of thing that allows you to look long at the painting. If he had answered these questions for us, it would have not given us the gift of paying attention, of looking long, of being fully present to yes. the moment. Yes. And I think that is one thing that really jumps out at me about this. Yes. Right. So among the many writers who discussed the significance of the Gulf Stream as a natural phenomenon was a man named Matthew Fontaine Maury, who is a complex figure, but as an oceanographer and geographer, Homer much admired. He wrote that the Gulf Stream is a balance wheel, a part of that grand machinery by which air and water are adapted to each other, and by which this earth itself is adapted to the well-being of its inhabitants, of the flora which deck and the fauna which enliven its surface. So Homer understood the Gulf Stream as a system, a system which, yes, involved danger, but also allowed for fruitfulness, including the fruitfulness that brought out of the soil this crop of sugarcane. Homer was asked to clarify the outcome of his intentionally ambiguous picture. And instead of doing that, he heightens the ambiguity of it, adding a, an even more dramatic flourish to the cyclone at upper right and adding the ghost ship to the upper left. And I think also increasing the colorful character of the flying fish to which and through which our unnamed hero, this American everyman, looks. I'm just amazed in general at the ability 
of Homer to depict conflict and to depict tension. You have told me in personal conversations that if you had to choose a favorite, and of course, no one wants to ask a biographer of, of an artist <laughs> which their favorite painting is, but the fox hunt is this powerful and unique, just art historically, picture of a fox and some crows. And if you were just to say, say that or listen to it without seeing this and without spending some time observing it, it would be easy to overlook. And yet when you do see it, the tension and conflict of life is just overwhelming. And so I wonder if we could end our conversation with some reflections on the fox hunt. So fox hunt is a, the largest picture that Homer ever painted. It is over 68 inches wide and depicts a tired, emaciated fox sinking into the snow, besieged by crows that are menacingly wide and overhead. Yeah, it's as if those crows are, in fact, oversized as well. When you compare their size to the fox, they're just enormous. They're not the size of an average crow. And the effect, the visual effect, is this kind of black cloud in the top right of the frame. Of course, these two frozen, of course, these two crows in the foreground are followed by several more that are on their way. And so this fox hunt that's happening is, and it really, it turns the predator, the fox, into prey in this strange, again, subversive moment Yes, that Homer loves to depict, that love he loves to poke and prod in this subversive way. And as is the case with veteran in the new field, we don't see the expression on the fox's face. We empathize with the fox in part because we don't see that face. It's almost, even though the fox is in front of us, it's almost as if it's a point of view yes. kind of painting where you feel almost attacked by those same crows. Yes. It's hard not to identify with the fox. That's right. And we comprehend the power of these natural forces, not only the hunger of both the fox and the crows, but also the power of the ocean scene beyond and the, the afternoon quickly slipping into night and the uncertainty about sources of food beyond the picture frame. A few berries are visible poking out of the snow, but how will any victor in this picture eat tomorrow? when there is so little food. And yet, as is the case with so many of his pictures, there is a grounding in Homer's humility that there is a design for the system as a whole, which is ordered and, and which we need to be confident in as benign. and and look to that order, which he described in admiring terms with the Gulf Stream, as also present in the depth of winter on the coast of Maine. One fascinating element of this painting is the fact that Homer's own signature seems to sink in the snow in the same way that the fox does. Yes, and Homer is reinforcing uh, our intuitive sense of his empathy in doing so. What do you think the fox is looking at? As I look at the angle of that fox's head, I can't tell if he's looking at that seagull over in the top left corner, looking at the fading light, looking for a way out, or if he's just focused entirely on the crows. Well, one of the things that's interesting is the fox is not looking at the berries, which would seem the source of his sustenance. He's looking, it would seem, out through the notch 
to the light on the ocean. And, and he, you know, guides us into this wider vista also and, and out this of capture, which he would otherwise be in. Which is another fascinating point. And perhaps this is what you were headed toward with, or what you were meaning with the Gulf Stream. But that same figure of the Gulf Stream makes us ask the question, what is he looking at? And why isn't he so concerned with the sharks? Why isn't this fox so concerned with the crows? And of course, maybe in fact, he is. Maybe he's running from them. But the gaze, the attentiveness of the viewer, like focusing on the gaze of, an, of the subject in these paintings, a fascinating tool for a painter to use to make a point. It really requires such an attentiveness to attentiveness. It, and that is what I think is one of the most glorious things that Homer leaves for us is this kind of, and I feel like we can come full circle to that question of long looking and attentiveness. And, and of all the distractions in life, the Homer painting is an invitation to stay in the moment. I wonder if you might just close by just some, making some reflections on what you pull from Homer's legacy and what his paintings mean to you personally. From Winslow Homer, I've learned many things. And one of them is to be observant. Another is to recognize that in, in each moment and in each person with whom our paths cross, there is an opportunity to learn, to grow, often through challenge. And I reflect often in something that Winslow Homer wrote when he was in his late 50s reflecting on his own life. He wrote his brother, the life that I have chosen gives me my full hours of enjoyment for the balance of my life. The sun will not rise or set without my notice and thanks. It's my hope and prayer that all of us with Winslow Homer can be more noticeful and thankful in each of our days and never take the rising of the sun or the setting of the sun or the beauty of each moment. Never take those for granted. I think the other quote that I want to present to you from an important chapter of your book, a chapter entitled The Flourishing Condition, he says, I simply must take advantage of my experience. Yes. I think that one thing, and he finds himself in what he says is, quote, known as a flourishing condition. And I think that paired with the kind of gratitude that you just depicted, the kind of observation, the kind of attentiveness to the world around us, and taking advantage of our experience for the sake of flourishing. I think that there's such a beautiful legacy. It doesn't take many words of Homer's to articulate that. And of course, that's because he gave us so many of his paintings to say so much more. Yes. He wrote a young friend of his that I have improved my place and have more room and better books. And I am in what is known as a flourishing condition. Bill, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a wonderful conversation. And I really have to thank you for introducing Homer to me. I had been aware, but really not formally introduced to this amazing artist. So I'm very grateful to you for that. It's an honor and a joy to introduce one friend to another. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Evan. production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale Divinity School. This episode featured writer, curator, and consultant William Cross. Special thanks to Tim Berglund. I'm Evan Rosa, and I edit and produce the show. For more information, visit us online at faith.yale.edu. New episodes drop every Saturday, sometimes midweek. If you're new to the show, welcome, friend. Hit subscribe in your favorite podcast listening app, and we love your feedback. 
Ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts are particularly helpful, but we're just as happy to hear from you by email at faith at yale.edu. We read each comment and do our best to respond and improve the show, bringing you the people and topics that you want to hear. And if you're a regular listener, it's a huge honor that you stick with us from week to week. So I'll ask you to step up and join us. Help us share the show. Behind those three dots in your podcast app, there's an option to share this episode by text or email or social media. If you took a brief moment to send your favorite episode to a friend or share with the world, not only would you be supporting the show, you'd be sparking up a great conversation around stuff that matters with people that matter. Thanks for listening today, friends. We'll be back with more this coming week.